Galatians chapter 5, my subject this morning is letting God's freedom reach your heart. It's been clear through this entire journey that we've been taking through the book of Galatians what Paul's belief was and what his concern was. He believed that someone can only be justified before God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is not accomplished through obedience to rules and rituals. Now, being obedient and practicing certain things are very good and can have their purpose, but they are not what justify you and me before God. In fact, turning to a system of rules after you have been set free and thinking that is the rules or the practices or the traditions, that that is what God is using as his evidence to smile upon you. He said earlier in this letter, actually nullifies the work of Christ in your life. Now please do good things, be good people. But understand what they are. Our good things, our actions, our prayer time, our obedience to him, our being a witness is a response to a gift that we were given freely. A gift of being made right in the Father's eyes. I talked last week about, what, about this freedom that we have in Jesus and not to focus on other stuff. Now, yes, we can see the difference between walking in the spirit and walking in the flesh, and Paul talked about that. Today, rather than focus on the outer stuff that everybody can see, I want to talk about the inner stuff. A freedom that so changes your heart that it is not only kind and gentle, which we saw in Galatians 5.22, but it's also willing to be a sacrifice for others. Galatians chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse number 26, backing up to a verse we read last week. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work and then he will have, a, have rejoicing in himself alone, not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. I see the comments at the end of chapter 5 as truly being connected to the ones that begin chapter 6. Let us not become conceited. Now, we all have our ideas of what conceit is. In the culture of that time and in the language of the scriptures, conceit basically means empty of glory. It's seeking something and seeking some type of adulation, but it's empty. Vain glory. Puffing oneself up, seeking the applause of other people. Knowing full well that that applause is empty. 
It has often amazed me how people will try to fill their lives with, with things, one, that can never satisfy the deeper recesses of their heart, and two, that repeatedly leave them empty, if not emptier than they were before. And the thing is, people know they're empty. They see that the things that they're doing aren't satisfying, yet they desperately try to fill their lives with all kinds of pleasure. And not all of the things they're trying to fill their lives with or trying to seek as pleasure are all bad. Some try to fill the emptiness of their lives with family. And family is not a bad thing. Family is a good thing. God has invited us into his family. But family is not going to satisfy the part of your heart that was meant to be satisfied only by Jesus Christ. There are those... And I've counseled with many of them who try to fill the emptiness in their heart by getting married. Obviously, I believe in marriage. That's a good thing. But it's not going to fill the inner recesses of your heart. I tell people all the time, if you're getting married expecting the other person to bring you happiness, you have turned that person into an idol. And you believe on them in a way that they can never deliver. There are some who try to fill the emptiness of their lives with children. And we love children. We believe that they are a blessing from God as the scriptures teach. But they cannot fill the emptiness that's in one's heart. These are all good things. But they can never fill the place in your life that was designed to be filled by God and God only. We live in a time when people are so incredibly insecure. They are desperate to prove themselves. They want to know that they are approved of and just the way they are, they are embraced. The thing is, there is nothing like knowing Jesus and there's nothing like knowing he loves you, he cares for you, and you have his applause. Jesus believes in you. Jesus embraces you. And the wonderful gift he gives if you will never have to prove yourself to Jesus. This world, in an effort to inspire people, will dangle fame and crowd approval in front of you. Going back to that verse, provoking one another. Into whatever philosophy is the current one of the day. Anyone remember a time when someone was tempted with the things of this world? A person in the scriptures? How about Jesus? First, Satan came to him to provoke him to take the stones that were there and turn them into bread since he had been in the wilderness for 40 days. Figured the man was hungry. Then when that temptation didn't work, Satan then tells him to go up on a high peak and just throw yourself off because after all, you are the son of God and the angels will come. And, Satan, and, and Jesus just looked at Satan and said, I have the power to do all of those things, but I'm not going to use that power to do something stupid. That's my paraphrase of the scriptures. But then we come to Matthew chapter 4, verse number 8. 
Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Satan offered Jesus not just things, but he offered him fame. He offered him applause. He offered him glory. And there are so many in our culture, and sadly, way too many in the church, that want their lives and they are seeking such things. And when you get a measure of this, a measure of what the world is looking for, you discover it's empty. It doesn't fill. It doesn't satisfy. Because if it did, you wouldn't keep seeking it. See, when I first got saved back in the late 70s, there was a phrase that was very popular as far as being able to evangelize to others about what the benefits of Jesus was. And it was a phrase I heard over and over again as an older teen. And it was that Jesus satisfies. And yet, from that, I've never understood, well, if Jesus satisfies... Why does sometimes I feel so empty? I need Jesus. I need more of him. But this world just offers up empty promises. And they seek after fame. And when they don't get it, when people don't get the fame and don't get the applause, what do they do at the end of verse 26 of chapter 5? They envy those who do. They look to those and wish I could be like them. Our interaction with one another is not about trying to outdo one another. How are we to interact with one another? And that's when he turns to chapter 6. Being a brother or sister, a friend for one another, especially in those times when life's challenges mount. It says when one is overtaken in a trespass, they have fallen. They have messed up. Now, for that, these scriptures to be fulfilled, it's not enough for the person to be overtaken in a trespass. The fact that they've been overtaken is something they have to share. People have to know that they were overtaken in a trespass. And how many of us love telling people when we messed up? Didn't expect any amens there. But it says, when you've been overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore them. So the next time someone is overtaken in a trespass and admits that they've fallen, and if they're gathered around people who are condemning them and telling them, how could you, and what was wrong with you, you know right away the people around them are not spiritual. Because that kind of language doesn't restore anybody. It doesn't say beat them up. It doesn't say chastise them. It doesn't say remind them, I told you so. I told you if you were going to go there, there was going to be problems. I told you if you went with that person, there could be issues. It doesn't say that. It says restore them. It doesn't say, well, I've got to give you a piece of my mind. It doesn't say make them feel like dirt. Paul said, Restore them. And sometimes I wonder why people don't go to church. 
No wonder people think that they have to clean up their lives first before coming into God's house. Restore them, how it says, in gentleness. Do we know how to be gentle anymore? As a culture, even as the American church, do we know what it is to be gentle? We know how to scream. We know how to yell. We know how to preach loudly. There are people who would say, I don't preach loud enough. I don't scream loud enough. I don't jump up and down enough. First of all, my back couldn't help or deal with the jumping up and down. So that's not going to happen. Restore them in gentleness, it says. And why be gentle? Because we're to remember as we're restoring someone else who's fallen in a transgression that may seem unthinkable to us, that remember that you are capable of making as dumb a choice in life as the person you're restoring, lest you be tempted. Oh, I would never do that. I thought they were a Christian. They are a flawed one. We have any flawless Christians here? Nobody, raise your hand, please. Here's a newsflash. People fall down. Here's an even more profound newsflash. Christians fall down. I remember dealing with someone once, and she was really burdened by someone who had fallen in an area and she just couldn't grasp it and from her perspective it just Christians don't do what this person did and he had fallen down significantly granted but she was having a difficult time with it she cut off all contact with him it destroyed their relationship and she said to me I don't know if he was ever Christian, if he could fall like that. And I asked her, is it really your belief that there are just certain places, certain levels of transgression that are incapable or not possible for Christians? And she said, yes, quickly. And I thought for a moment. And I said, do me a favor. Have you ever been in those situations or been in those church services where the Spirit of God is truly moving and you hear God's call or God's impression upon your life to go in a certain area or get involved in a certain ministry or become something specific as you minister to the people of God? And she said, yes, those are wonderful times. I said, if God ever calls you in one of those ministry times, those precious times at the altar, that he wants you to be a minister, a servant, a counselor to God's people, do me a favor. Tell him no. Because if you're going to get shaken by the fact that God's people make dumb choices, the last people you should be ministering to is God's people. Because we all make dumb choices. But we have a God who is greater than any mistake, greater than any transgression, and he's looking for God's people to be a vehicle and a vessel of us coming back to a place of restoration. But that process needs to be in gentleness, not in arrogance. She didn't talk to me after that. How are we to pick one another up? He says, 
by bearing one another's burdens. I've become convinced that the church doesn't know what that means. I know we care. And we say we care. And we say that we will walk with them through some of the storms that they encounter. But not just walk with someone. Are we truly willing to bear part of their burden? Are we willing to share the burden? Even if their burden is self-inflicted. You see, in Old Testament and in New Testament times, when you would say to someone, I'm going to bear part of your burden, even within an agricultural setting, basically what you were saying, if the person with the burden had 50 pounds of whatever they were moving, you were willing to take 25 pounds of it and put it on you so they no longer had a burden of 50 pounds. Sharing it was not walking with them as if, I walk with them while they still carry 50 pounds. Bearing one another's burden is you and I taking some of the weight off, taking the responsibility on ourselves, even taking the emotional turmoil on ourselves so that they don't carry it alone, I carry it with them. That's getting involved in someone's life that most people are kind of shy about. Being really close to someone like that is rare. Because it requires, it requires humility by both people. Because most people have a mindset that when they get into a burden, I'll get out of this myself. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> you need Jesus to get out of any pit you're in. And Jesus has put in his scriptures, he would like his people to be involved in his work of taking you out of the pit. To be burdened with someone else's stuff. But pastor, you don't understand. My life is real good now. I've just gotten out of my own pit. Why would I want to get myself involved in other people's problems? Because Jesus got involved in yours. Many will say, I got my own stuff. And I'm not denying that, but this verse is clear. Bear one another's burdens. And Paul's spirit-led declaration is that there is freedom deep within when we do for others what Jesus did for us. When we walk with them the way he's walked with us. For Jesus didn't share the burden of sin with you. He took it. He took it up all upon himself and he bore it. We need a church today that is this humble. You got a problem, I'm going to walk with you. It's now our problem, and part of it is my problem. Otherwise, it says in verse 3 of chapter 6, for if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, it's one thing and a good thing to give help to others. It's a good thing to give to others so that they can be blessed. But our world's model of charity, our culture's mindset when it comes to giving is giving what you can when you can. And I want to be balanced here. I'm not looking to make anybody think that they need to go into poverty. 
But what he's saying here is give to the point where there's an impact in your life. When you're carrying a burden for someone else that you didn't have before, you're going to feel it. And Paul calls this wisdom. Now, I believe in balance. Don't misunderstand me. But when it comes to bearing one another's burdens, what God is saying through Paul is that the burden in their life becomes lighter because the burden in your life has increased. And Paul calls this freedom. God called this freedom. There's a story about this in Luke chapter 21, verse, starting in verse number 1. And he looked up and saw the rich puffing, putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has given more than all. For all of these out of their abundance have put into the offering for God. But she out of her poverty put in all her livelihood that she had. And I again want to step back and proclaim balance here. I'm not saying anybody should take their mortgage money and give it to the church. Please don't do that. In fact, if you do, I'm going to give it back. But when our hearts are truly and completely experiencing this freedom that Jesus gives and freedom from being concerned about the things that only God's going to take care of, then the blessings and being a blessing to other people become easier. But then their pain becomes our pain too. So this letter was written to a church. It was written to family. This letter encourages us to examine our own work, our own lives, our own stuff, and realize that there is no reason to envy anybody else. Now, let's be real. Just being honest here, it's us. There are times I wish I could cook like Sister Rosa. Times. They're not often, but there are times. There are times that I wish a lot of things I could do that I've seen other people do. But when that becomes a preoccupation, when that becomes a tool that the enemy uses to somehow get you convinced that you're somehow less than someone else, then it's become biblical envy and it's become damage. And that's not what God wants. You have no reason to envy anybody else. You have no need to envy anybody else. Focus on carrying your load, knowing that Jesus will help you carry it. So I don't need to cook like Sister Rosa, because Sister Rosa is still here. <laughs> and I'm grateful for that. Aren't you glad that there is no load, no burden, no challenge you will ever face where Jesus says you're on your own? Aren't you glad he will always be there? And there are people in our culture, there'll be people we meet at St. James Day that need to know that. 
that they don't have to do things on their own. They don't have to say, I got it, when in reality, they don't. They don't have to say, I can make it on my own because that's the way it's supposed to be. No, we are completely and totally dependent upon Jesus. That song we sang at the end, I need you. I need you. Draw me close to you. You're all I want. And you're all I've ever needed. We need to give our burdens to him. And that process of giving our burdens to him, more often than not, regardless of how you look at the church, is not a private enterprise. We share that with one another. First, First Peter chapter 5. We know the verse in verse 7. Casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Jesus cares for you. And the great thing is that this blessing is not, not just means for us alone. When we let Jesus carry our burdens, that means we have room to carry somebody else's. Perhaps some of the time that we're not able to carry someone else's burden because we haven't gone to Jesus and unburdened ourselves and given some stuff to him so that we can then be there for someone who may not be as far along in their Christian walk or may not have come to him yet. See, the flesh says, when it comes to issues or getting ahead, the flesh says, it's you or me, and I'm going to choose me. The spirit says, we're in this together. One of the things that made me so blessed and so proud of our church from the beginning of the pandemic, day one when we were shut down, is how we stuck together. We were there for one another. We, we stayed in touch with one another. Because that's what the Spirit says. Letting this sharing one another's burdens idea, let it go deep within your being. But the reality is, in order to share one another's burdens, we have to know one another. We're not going to be sharing burdens that are deep within us, that are impacting our lives in significant ways with someone we just met. That requires taking time, like we do at the end of the service, to fellowship and draw close and know one another's lives and understand how they're put together. The world will call it radical. The world will call it foolish, what we're trying to do. The Bible calls it freedom. Freedom from this world's of just ultimate codependency. I want you to just be dependent upon me, and, but you can call it you're doing your own thing. No. We want to be there for one another. We want to be there for the people of St. James. We want to be there for Charlie, who we've prayed for for over a year. We want to be there for every burden in your life, and then you can be there for the burdens in our lives. That is called family. Family. And that's who Paul wrote this letter to, the family of God. We get so off track on things. We become so isolated. I don't need anybody. And we don't say it. And we say we don't believe that, but we live lives that give the impression, I'm good. Well, I'm going to help you with that. I'm good. And I've used the example. It's ultimately seen at the end of a meal with a group of friends. If one person says, I'll get the check. 
And all of a sudden, panic ensues in everyone's heart. They're going to pay for my meal? No, 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 no. That's wrong. Why? Why is it wrong? I promise you, and I've said this before, if we're out to dinner, you want to pay for my meal? I'm going to say thank you. I'm going to say thank you. In fact, I may comment that if I had known you were going to do that, I'd have ordered more. I'm only kidding about that. Well, I may say that, but I really am only kidding about that. But this is the family that God wants to create in the church. We're not just connected to him. We're connected to one another. We're going to spend eternity together. We might as well get used to one another and understand one another. Again, the world's going to call this radical, strange, weird, foolish. Jesus calls it freedom. Stand with me, please.